Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to your book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. Firstly, we now have a newsletter. You can find us at furtherreading, all one word, .substack.com. You'll be the first to get news about brand new episodes. You'll be able to buy tickets to live events I'm hosting with other writers. You'll hear from me about the books I love and we'll have all sorts of goodies and book giveaways for you. If you follow our Substack, you can find out all about the creative writing course I'm teaching in January, Write Like a Reader. This one is aimed at every one of you who loves books and who definitely has a book inside them, but just needs a great big confidence boost in order to get the contents of your head onto the page. We're going to be on Zoom and it's going to be a very cosy, very supportive space. I've taught before, but this is the first time I have created my very own course from scratch. I'm nervous, I'm excited, and I can't wait for us all to form a little writing gang. Check out Substack for more information. My latest novel, Careering, a romantic comedy about work, The Bad Boyfriend Who Will Never Love You Back, is now out in hardback. If you want a signed copy of that, my saucy novel, Insatiable, my non-fiction memoirs, How to Be a Grown-Up, All the Sisterhood, please get in touch with a Margate Bookshop or Book Bodega in Ramsgate. They deliver nationwide and will be able to make it happen. All my books are also available from Waterstones, Amazon and Audible, and Careering is now available on BBC Sounds. I've just handed in my brand new novel and your book listeners will be the first to hear all about it and see Becky Guyatt's amazing cover. I'm also hoping to be able to give podcast listeners a pre-order discount. Watch this space. If you're listening on Monday the 7th of November, the day it goes out, I'm having a festive book conversation tonight with podcast alumnus Lindsay Kelk in Waterstones, Birmingham. There might still be a couple of tickets available on the Waterstones website and I'm planning to bring some pigs and blankets. Now, on to today's guest. Lucy Easthope is one of the UK's leading authorities on emergency planning. Her best-selling book, When the Dust Settles, has been one of the biggest hits of the year. Profound, practical and personal, it's a memoir and a guide to navigating the worst of times with kindness, usefulness and great grace. I went to Lucy's talk at Henley Literary Festival and basically fell in love with her on the spot and begged her to be on the podcast. She's wise, vulnerable, warm, funny and charismatic and inspires hope during the hardest times. Also, she is the ultimate podcast guest. She talked about Charles Dickens, Jade Goody, Jane Austen, Judy Bloom and absolutely everyone in between. 
I will never ever forget this conversation and I hope it leaves you feeling even better than it found you. It definitely did me. So Lucy, I'd like to start by saying I can see your bookshelves behind you and they are beautiful shelves. They are very, very handsome. What kind of wood is that? This is old reclaimed oak. Uh, And this is just one of my sets of shelves, actually. Um, When we moved house, um, right, um, we moved about last year and my husband had been desperately sort of trying to go with maybe next next move we can declutter. And what I love is that he's just completely, he's given in now. So every room, he's just finding bits of old wood now. He he, he realises there's no fight that he can win on this. So he's just putting shelves up everywhere. I love that. If you can't beat them, just build the shelves. <laughs> just build so, more shelves. Um, but yeah, we're, we're just on a mission to fill every nook with, with bookshelves now. So these are this year's, there's a couple of things in there. This is this year's purchases, because um, I'm bankrupting myself at book festivals currently. But also I thought, because I've been doing all my interviews in this corner, these are the books that inspire me and keep me going. And, um, you know, I also like to make book friends. So these are the books that, like to be next to my book (laughs) so there's book friends i love that you're hosting your own author party (laughs) constantly and they and they and sort of this is my most curated shelf and then upstairs is the disaster books and they have to be approached with caution because they're obviously a bit more troubling and um they're, they're a bit higher up uh and i've started to notice that some of the lower down ones are starting to go missing and i suspect they're going missing into Mabel's bedroom and I need to perhaps keep an eye on that so there's a a disaster box and then um I kept every book from childhood and teen so they've got their shelves and then there's all the wellness books are all in my bathroom (laughs) (laughs) so every every room uh I loved it when I had the kids because a health visitor said you know have you have you got any books at home for the children to read I was like have I got books You were prepared. I was you were ready. ready. Now I just realised that perhaps some of them should be on a higher shelf. But I was, I, I'm, yeah, this is a bookie house. So let's start with what's behind you. Uh, what are the most recent additions to your shelf of book friends? Oh, well, I'm loving my, this sort of crop of written in lockdown, really, con, you know, really kind of considered celebrity memoir. So the one that I absolutely devoured was um, Alan Cummings' new one, uh, which is Tales from a Fully Packed Life. Oh, um, I love him. I'm desperate to read yeah, that. Tell that me one. about and it. He, he's, he's sitting next to uh, Mini Driver's uh, Managing Expectations, because I like the fact, because they were in a circle of friends together, so I like <laughs> I like my book synergy. No, no, no organised by colour here. They have to be with their with their book friends and I love that Uh, what's the mini driver one like yeah it it sounds like it's going to be more philosophical I think I mean not to not to say something hugely controversial but it feels like these are books genuinely written by the by the um, author (laughs) which is lovely and kind of also very similar to you know what I've liked about myself they're they're dirty and they're they're sort of you know they go to places and they they admit their failings and they say oh god I was horrible on that movie set or I was really racked with concerns they're really raw and I just found um Alan's I, I was just devouring it and that was good because I think like a lot of people I'd struggled to get into any kind of non-work related reading in the last few years so these these really hooked me um and I like to think that, that this is also this I've mixed in some self-help because obviously this is the sitting room so I like to think of of like people perhaps 
thinking, oh, what, what could get me through these, these difficult times mm. in this winter? So there's Recovery by Gavin Francis, which I just think is a wonderful one. I, I love oh, that. I don't know that at all. Tell me about yeah, it. Yes, so I did an event with Gavin in Edinburgh. And I'd already, I mean, I am responsible for, he's doing very well, but I'm responsible for a big section of those sales because <laughs> I am, I'm sending that book as gift. So I gift books a lot. And that book's going to everybody who's got a hip replacement coming up, everybody who's feeling a bit low, everybody who's just been diagnosed with illness. It's a really lovely book that just reminds you to take your time to recover and the kind of meaning of, of uh, you know, true kind of health recovery. So sitting with some of my writing around disaster recovery, we paired really well. Um, and that, that was a wonderful event. And, and the difficulty of doing events with an author where you're just kind of lost in what they're saying <laughs> I was like ignore me I just want to listen to Gavin Francis so and it's little as well so it I've been posting it you know I've got an Australian very dear Australian friend and and she she was recovering from illness and I sort of posted it out there and it didn't break the bank to send it so it's a that's a beautiful book to gift I think for this year particularly this mm. winter and anybody who's just you know been struggling with illness that sounds great and I feel like to a point that's all of us over the yeah. last couple of years we need that reminder yeah. that you know we can't pretend that nothing happened yeah. and we just got to snap back to normal because I think we feel a lot of pressure to do that and yeah. we're, we're not doing it we're not able to do it no no and so he's telling us stuff and then he's because he's a, like an actual medical doctor not like me he's just a doctor doctor he's an actual medical just doctor. a doctor doctor <laughs> well, Lucy, come on one now. of my medical referral letters say thank you for referring this delightful lady who is not a medical doctor because <laughs> I you know it is a thing that I'm not but he is and he so he sat there and he's sort of all you know kind of in control control of his message and very very um very sort of suave you'd have to say suave <laughs> he's just very yeah, good presence so. and um set you know, reminding people like a really good doctor should that you know recovery takes time and i think this is one of the things about with 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 covid it's a horrible disease and it takes time to recover from so i really noticed it in his event that you know people were hanging off his every word and of course that's what a good non-fiction help book does you know it's sort of got the authority particularly it's in hardback or so it's got the authority but also you know when coupled with an author's event people go oh okay the book said it (laughs) so you know it's the return of of wisdom and and the sage so um yeah that's that's up there um and then there's a few there's a few others that just always make me laugh like uh, let's do it the victoria wood um biography and lots of stuff by dawn french and Jennifer Saunders and Caitlin Moran. And I really liked um, Mylene Class's new book, um, They oh. Don't Teach This at School. And um, it's slightly frustrating me because I think I'd have liked to put that out as well, <laughs> but with more emergency planning. And it's sort of self, self-survival self uh, uh, messages for kids and first aid and changing a light bulb. But as I say, I'd, I'd have expanded it slightly into more disaster management. But it's a that's a great book. So, yeah, this is my... This is my show-off bookcase behind me. Each one has a different role in the house. <laughs> and it sounds as though lots of these people are authors that you know and that you've met because your book has connected you with all these people, which I think is so exciting. I love that you write a book and it's a way to, to travel. It's a leveller as well, isn't it? I think that when you're sort of author to author, and I love that, like today, you know, I can sort of, you know, meeting a writing hero, but also knowing you both know what it's like to sit down 
and be on your own and think about things and have to sort of push through the self-doubt and to have to kind of miss things and have those lonely hours where you know you just got to get it done yeah oh absolutely and I hadn't expected to enjoy um the book festivals as much as I have for exactly that reason like I thought the green room would be this starry place and it's not it's like a sort of survivor's lounge isn't it like (laughs) however famous the author is or maybe they're a historian everyone's like oh my contract is due you know everybody's in this this wonderful place but also the shared experience of writing there's a huge um equality I think to, to book events at the moment that I hadn't expected and ultimately everybody is there as a as a writer they've known that they've known the issue of deadlines and that that was a completely new experience for me and 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 totally restorative I, you know i i've said yes to perhaps more than i expected to because i do find the book world is feeding something into me a tonic for my soul that you know i was missing and it's been hugely restorative can we tell the story of how we met yes <laughs> please do i find it delightful <laughs> So it's embarrassing, but do go there. (laughs) I was doing some events at Henley uh, Literary Festival, which is one of my favourites. And I went to see Lucy's talk. I watched Lucy for an hour and I was just captivated and moved. And I think I cried and I definitely (laughs) laughed. And I was so inspired and uplifted by her ethos and her message. And then producer Dale and I were sitting on a bench, having a sandwich um, a little while later. Dale saw Lucy looking around and suggested that she might be lost. And I said, no, no, no. This woman is an expert in disaster management and planning. You can parachute her anywhere and she'll know exactly where she is and exactly what's going on. Plus, I don't want to be a fangirl. It'll be quite embarrassing. And I'm halfway through this bacon and sausage baguette. But Dale, because producer Dale is, above all else, a very kind man, went and said hello and and you were lost because the green room was sort of tucked around the back and in a bit of an awkward place and looks very different I think when you approach it from the back of the front so the fact that it's three minutes away from the venue (laughs) and I've been lost for about 40 minutes so if you see an author looking (laughs) lost I say always always (laughs) Always ask if they need a hand (laughs) well you'd also you'd fallen directly into the sort of disaster responder fallacy that I would know where I was (laughs) whereas in fact I'm well known for getting lost in major cities all around the world so I was very grateful that producer Dale spotted the signs (laughs) because I mean I could have been there for days just roaming Henley although what a lovely place to be lost so I was very, very grateful that you that you found me. And of course, I'd very, I'd very um, grandly said that, of course, I could find my own way back to the green room. But um, yeah, I, I can get lost everywhere and, and anywhere. And in fact, that's a major theme in my in my writing is is my dyspraxia, which means that I regularly need to be assisted <laughs> on these things. And yeah, you you and I met there. So I also think it was fate. I think the fates wanted us to meet. They just ensured oh, yes. that I embarrassed myself to, to just... <laughs> I really want to think so. Um, with dyspraxia, I thought that's something that I, I know little about. I think very little is known about it. How has that sort of affected your your life? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm incredibly clumsy. Um, I saw a really good write-up on, a, I think it was a BBC piece recently, about how it affects people, and it absolutely summed up all the different things so you will go to walk through a doorway and just completely miss it you know your kind of spatial awareness very very clumsy you'll spill things you'll knock things over you're quite poor at knowing whether there's something on your face you're quite poor at dressing 
um, you know, growing up in the in the seventies and eighties in in Birkenhead and Liverpool, it was a, you know the kind of clumsy girl. But then once I got to sort of nineties and two thousands, it's now it's now a diagnosis. Um, there's also some other things that you do. So, for example, you're perhaps and you have quite an unusual gait in your walk, or a little bit of a hop in your walk, and you're sort of it's another sort of form of neurodivergence where you know obviously as with all these things there's these hidden strengths so you're also perhaps you're very caught up in the moment or you can be quite creative but your your body just sort of is is not working how you would you know you're not you're not very polished I think which also means it's a strange thing to describe because uh, I have no sense of left or right at all and I'll have no sense of a map and at, at 44 now you can kind of laugh about it and people make kind of dispensations for you but when you're in your 20s and as you say working in disaster response people's idea of what the polished product will look like is sort of as I always say in the book kind of the James Bond <laughs> effect you know you'll be very slick at what you do the idea that you you might arrive last because you've got lost the meeting people then equate with your competence in the meeting so it's took a lot of masking and I think like a lot of things dyslexia dyspraxia other neurodivergence you end up masking a lot so uh I will write L and R on my hands or you know there's a various jokes in the book about being pranked around that but like everything I think it does make you if you if you can kind of rise to the challenge of it it makes you and as you get older I think you get more articulate about asking for assistance so recently mm. at a festival people wanted me to walk down quite a long flight of stairs and I always need a handrail partly because I've got quite bad arthritis but also spatially I kind of need to hold on to something and you you know I'm, I'm kind of confident enough to say oh I can't do that but I could do this but I, but 20s me really struggled with that and, and I think it's one of the things that people have connected with in the writing I think particularly women and girls have kind of connected with I don't have to be a stereotype to perhaps still find a very exciting, interesting career. I think it's so important to hear that. And as you say, that pressure to be polished, I think in in different ways, we all we all get that. Something I can't stop thinking about, not to do with books at all. I'm a really, really big fan of Taskmaster. I love it. And I saw Fern Brady on Twitter and I think she's fantastic. She, I think she has autism mm. and she's talking about watching herself and how she talks and how she responds to tasks, the bits that are sort of the behaviours and things that she associates with her autism. And, you know, and watching her, quite honestly, not that this is, not that autism is anything to, to hide or conceal, but I wouldn't have known, I wouldn't have guessed. But she said that she's able to accept herself and even love things about herself that she hated about because of how she, she sees herself and she's able to make peace with something that sort of always troubled her and maybe something she's felt pressure to conceal. And I was really, really moved by that. Yeah, I, I completely empathise with that. And I think the book is the book has really helped me to kind of release me. Like, you get me, you get the whole package. And I, I did a big lecture on Monday and it was in a really big convention centre and I was very excited to do it and, and, and went a bit brave and a bit, you know, kind of power loosey. And I watched it back 
and there's so much there's so many of my ticks and traits and I'm very interested in what the other person's saying so I'm sitting forward which isn't the most flattering of poses you know and I'm sort of I'm it's a big chair with like big big winged arms and you can essentially see that I'm stuck in it so I'm trying to find my comfy place and and it's that thing about when my, you know my my first degree was in law you know, the glass ceiling was being broken by women all the time, but they were polished. You know, they had the kitten heels. They stood up straight. Their bodies didn't give them away. You know, as, as a police officer said to me once, you know, I have neither poker face nor poker body. And so <laughs> I think, um, you know, it wasn't just the glass ceiling that, that was a bit of a challenge for me. It was also that I wasn't, I, I could try very hard. You know, my, I remember my mum taking me to sort of a nice shop to get a nice tailored suit. But I'm going to get dinner down. I'm going to tuck something in wrong. And people really interpret that as you not caring. They see it as sloppiness. So I watched that video back and I saw, I saw me. You know, you have to kind of take me as I am now, I think. But it's never, it's never a sign that I I don't care. I mean, I joke a lot on Twitter about having wardrobe monitors, <laughs> which so some of the other disaster planner ladies have taken me on. <laughs> and you know, the, you get all the. I think you get all these coping strategies. And and one of the things I think we've we've lost the balance somewhere in the middle. We're, we're pushing and pushing diagnosis of these things at the moment, but but not perhaps teaching young women how to to manage them or how to be proud of them, but also compensate you know I'm terrible for tucking skirt into tights into pants and then heading off into work you know you've got to have people that say you know you're having a wardrobe disaster or you've got to have uh, you know as happened at Henley you've got to have producer Dale saying are you lost so there is a middle ground where you can't entirely mask and the other thing I think about the masking is you're doing twice the work all the time for the book festivals, that's my hardest thing. I could talk about the book all day and I could talk about disasters all day. But when somebody's like, we need to mic you up and then you need to come in from the left side of the stage and you need to sit there and your water's there. That's what that's what my work is. That's the labour of having the dyspraxia. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's that feeling perhaps of, I mean, I don't, I've not had any diagnosis, but I relate to so much of this enormously. That feeling that you're, you can never sort of get beyond second gear in terms of the effort yeah. of yeah. being the the package yeah. is so sort of so grinding. I would love to hear about any books you've read, be they memoir or novels, where you've seen seen characters that where that have made you feel seen, and maybe as well seeing characters and you thought this is who I'd like to be. Yeah, yeah, and I think I mean Caitlin Moran does that so well in in how how to be a woman and and how to uh, build a girl and all those kind of there was a, there was some of myself in there, and I think people people also assumed early on in my career that there was a sort of aping of Bridget Jones. You know, people would be like, "Oh, you're the Bridget Jones of disaster," but actually, I would I'd struggle a bit with that because. There was never the lightness of, say, Bridget Jones. There was always, you know, there was absolutely focused, kind of laser focused. And there's a bit in my book where I talk about you switch as soon as you're at a disaster scene or a disaster mortuary, you switch into gear and everything kind of tenses up. And so it wasn't that I was treating any of this this lightly. And as I was thinking about it, you know, preparing for today, I was thinking about the sort of books that that informed me as a really, really little child. And I loved television and I loved uh, I loved drama. And I remember um, A Little Princess getting that very early on by um, Frances Hodgson Burnett. 
And what I took from The Little Princess was how quickly life can kind of change, which was already something I was very obsessed with, you know, that the things could, you mustn't get, you mustn't rest on your laurels. So that I really identified with with a lot of the, the, the that sort of writing and, and I was absolutely obsessed with like the minor characters in Dickens mm. and stuff. Yeah, and they're sort of drawn to the misery, I think, of, of, of Dickens. I, I was quite a, a, an early reader and quite an advanced reader, so I was allowed to sort of scurry off to the senior school libraries earlier on and and sort of check out books that were beyond where I was supposed to be. So you'd end up kind of with your Judy Bloom a bit early. <laughs> and and so we know. have to come to that because it's not your book if we don't talk about forever. But I'd love to hear about the Dickens that you sort of gravitated towards first. And yeah. Who you left. Because I've read shamefully little Dickens and I've never really fully enjoyed anything apart from A Christmas Carol. And I think I really love David Copperfield. Um I really struggled with great expectations and I was thinking this Christmas yeah. I would like I'm going to try and read my dad's favorite book Bleak House which yeah. I've never I've read, never read Bleak because House. it's called Bleak House. <laughs> <laughs> Let's both read it. Let's cuz that's the thing. so for me it was like the triumvirate of Oliver Twist Great Expectations and uh Christmas Carol. And you're sort of drawn like you, you're supposed to I think see the redemptiveness of the redemptive what is that word? Redemption of Christmas Carol. Yes. Actually I'm like obsessed with like how how awful must it be to be woken up by these ghosts you know and it's sort of really you know and, and and then the sort of horror of Oliver Twist and and uh you know kind of okay okay I understand that we're focusing on Oliver but I really want to understand more about Nancy mm. <laughs> and that was oh that, my god that's Nancy. always me you know I'm like and it, it always fascinates me the way that we consume the, these now and mm. and who we who we focus on so those those three were were really interesting, and then um, the other thing that absolutely I think the very first book memories I have are sort of uh, Enid Blight and the Famous Five. I couldn't get into the Secret Seven; that just felt completely wrong. The Famous well, Five, the Secret Seven didn't bloody do anything. No, they just were, like, in many. their clubhouse eating biscuits, <laughs> which I mean you'd think would be right up my alley, but at least the Famous Five did stuff. They had focus, and to be honest, they're, they're solving crime all over the place. So. Those and those were all on the shelf in a numbered order, and I think I've lost some of them in my in my life journey, and that distresses me. I'm missing some numbers in the Famous Five, and I would imagine that those original ones now cannot be replaced. You know, I've seen various iterations of of new versions of the Famous Five. So there was Enid Blyton, of course. What else would a disaster planner love than than when Enid Blyton had revisited like the Brer Rabbit stories and that kind of all the kind of Brer Rabbit is disaster planning. <laughs> yes. It's kind of like, look what happens if you don't do this. Or look what happens. So Enid Blyton is a, is a great catastrophist, actually. And also, she's she's very good at laying a trail that leads, silvery threads that lead you to work out, a bit like Scooby-Doo, <laughs> where this is going. So that's those are my earliest memories. And then I got completely lost in Redwall by Brian Jacks. And that was great because um, that just he just brought brought new Redwall characters out every year, and they, I, I mean, I've got this on a big shelf upstairs, and my children are just getting to the age where they're going to get into them, and that is so exciting. So that was Matthias the mouse, but they go dark quickly. They get really dark. I've also always read alongside that um, a lot of nonfiction and a lot of plays. And I really, I'm a Liverpool girl, of course, we loved Willie Russell. So it was kind of our day out and Blood Brothers. And and yeah, I mean, it was it was very difficult to to find female characters that I identified with. And then I think probably 
the first time I thought, wow, these are really good descriptions of stronger girls was Judy Bloom. Because Judy Bloom, I love her so much for so many reasons, but I think one of the big things, and it's, there are disasters, but they're not disasters at all. And in the hands of another writer, it'd be like, oh my God, this thing happened. But they are about, I don't know, surviving adolescence and surviving yourself. And she doesn't make a big dramatic deal out of things. She's much more interested in the emotions of of the happening. I'm looking on the shelf for Tiger Eyes because I remember just being completely... Because Tiger Eyes is bereavement and grief Mm -hmm. and personal effects, you know, and she keeps the... The, is it the clothes that she's wearing in a in a bag and I think sometimes my my reading as a as a child predated my experience as an adult but I was ready I was ready for it I think the other thing that American writers were able to do and you know even if you look at some of the, the children's books of that time uh, like Ramona and others mm. was that 80s American children were allowed emotion. And that, you know, that was like Oliver Twist. We sort of know that he, he kind of feels sorry for Nancy and he wants to go, go home. But we, we don't really know kind of how he shouts and screams about it. So the Ramonas and then into the Judy Blooms, these these are girls, you know, perhaps shouting and slamming doors. And this was something that was quite, quite new to me, I think. And then I remember finding, I found it the other morning, I bought it. I need to find if I've still got Tiger Eyes. I found in the school library, Red Sky in the Morning, which was a children's book about a girl who's looking after her profoundly disabled baby brother. And it's so powerful. And I would read it all the time because, again, she's she's feeling stuff. And I think that was that was a big a big thing for me. The writing about women who cared or young women who cared, who were empathetic, who were highly sensitive, who perhaps were being having a, you know, you can overstate it to say a tough time at school, but, you know, go, going to school and not feeling that you fitted in, you know, so a lot of the Judy Bloom characters are feeling too much, really, to fit into high school. And I remember going in after the first Iraq war, and I think it was at the point that two RAF pilots had been taken hostage. And I was really upset and really worried about them. So I'm about 12, 13. And another girl just saying, you know, you're so weird. And just being very, very heightened to the world around me and being very worried about things like Bosnia. And, and Judy Bloom's characters are allowed to do that. So that was that was very helpful, I think. You know, kind of quite soon after that, my dad brought... <laughs> it's always my dad. It's always my enabler. He brought home some Patricia Cornwell. So you've gone from your Judy Bloom to your Patricia Cornwell. I was about 15. Wow. And she just blew my mind. In fact, I got it out because it's in the other it's in the other bookcase, and it's a very early from Potter's Field. And Dad had Dad had rescued it from a skip, so it's all kind of mashed and mouldy. I now have a complete set of Patricia Cornwells that are new. And I think Scarpetta in Patricia in Patricia Cornwell, she she struggles with probably sort of high performing Aspergers, or you know, she 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 often talks about her difficulties with. With I think I've just diagnosed Scott. I don't know if she says that, but she talks about you know finding it hard to socialise or finding hard, and very similar to me, she has these very uh, like non 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 relationship but intense friendships with colleagues like her, her, her colleague Marino, and it was the it was the adjectives and the description. So Patricia Cornwell actually was the first person where I thought well at least there's two of us because Patricia Cornwell is 
is thinking these things as well. <laughs> so it's all, for me, it's there's a lot of you know a lot of um, American love, definitely for for American writing. Some <laughs> US in there, and that yeah. was so fantastic because I remember that. I mean, I'm 37, so a little bit younger, but I was desperate to go to America, and then America seemed like a truly fabulous place yeah. to go, and I was excited about this, the culture and the voices, and it seemed so thrilling and exotic. They were doing something that it was. It was hard to find in the school library, I think. And I think probably like you, we had we had quite, a, a, you know, we had the school library and then we had the big Birkenhead Central Library on Borough Road. And that was where you would go for sort of a poetry workshop or if you had to do a project looking in the local archives. And then we had the library van. But the problem with the library van was my mum and dad were very, very good book gifters. So although it was a bit boring sometimes, <laughs> I got a dictionary, a set of dictionaries, in, which is lovely now, a set of dictionaries embossed with my name. And I think I probably wanted a Game Boy. Yeah. <laughs> and I was gutted, well, you know. You can't either. I mean, I'm sure better people than me do, but you don't really want to take a dictionary to bed, do no, you? No, no. I mean, they are beautiful. And I still have them today. And I thought, oh God, I was so ungrateful. And mum would buy sort of, you know, she'd buy me a set of Jane Austens or something, which again was great, but I was sort of 13 and, and just mm. sort of really wanting my first pair of jeans. <laughs> so, you know, but I was, if I could have had a both, the set of Jane Austens mm. and the jeans. And my mum was always a member of, because um, she was a she she was a teacher, she still is a teacher, and she'd be in the staff room and they'd have those book clubs that you'd pay into and you'd get a catalogue. So, oh, the Scholastic yeah, ones. Yeah, but also, so she'd get like the new Nigella and a, and a set of Jane Austens. So we were big, we still are big book gifters. And so I'd, we'd have the library van come to school, but I'd already have all the library van books really you know and so and it was probably the start of things like um tracy beaker which my mum was quite nervous of (laughs) anything american and tracy beaker uh sorry mum. and also there was um there was a lot of sorts of horrid henry and all those things were starting to come out on the library van and i'd be grab i'd definitely gravitate to the the non-fiction as well if i could and that was where i would sort of try and try and find my home lots of stuff on Pompeii and history that was where I try and try and you know use my three tickets to take stuff out millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom like Evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me that wasn't an option I never really was a salad guy that's just not who I am but Noom worked for me Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. 
Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. We'll be back with Lucy soon, but now it's time for my steal of the week. I've chosen Just Got Real by Jane Fallon. After her divorce, Joni is curious but cautious about online dating and lacks the confidence to be herself. So she tells a couple of lies. However, she's not the only one who is lying. I thought I'd sussed out where this story was going after the first few pages, but like Joni, I was taken by surprise. This is a riot. Funny, pacey, super smart with a trio of excellent grown-up heroines at its heart. I love Jane Fallon's novels, but I think this is my favourite so far. I know people throw around words like unputdownable, but I couldn't put it down. I was sneakily reading pages during the time calls on Bake Off and it was Custard Week. Just Got Real by Jane Fallon is published by Michael Joseph and out now. Now back to Lucy. Were there any particular authors or books that you remember about Pompeii, say, or, you know, ancient civilizations and disasters past? Well, I mean, some really obscure ones. And we, my um, gran was actually the first, uh, or in the first cohort of classics graduates from Liverpool University who, who was a woman. And so she, she uh, was a real kind of... Um, uh, fighting spirit and wanted to study Latin and Greek. So we we she did a lot of. I mean, this was that bookshelf over there is just all Latin and Greek texts, and it always made me laugh because she would quite often speak in Latin. We could certainly write in Greek, and then when I went to university on this widening participation scheme, and everybody had been very very you know well educated, and I'd been well educated as well, but they'd all been very very poshly well educated. Um, in law, you obviously needed Latin, and my Latin was better than. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Eaton and the Harrow and the Radley boys, and I was always very, very in your proud face, of that. in your face with a Scouse accent, my Latin. <laughs> um, so, just I mean, that bookshelf over there is all kind of ancient Latin and Greek texts, and then I think Pompeii. I was obsessed with Pompeii because I think both the the fastness of the disaster and then also the way that the the bodies and the personal effects become the story of the disaster and that's what we're uncovering so lots of Dorling Kindersley did a book on uh, the personal effects of Pompeii and that uh, I asked for for Christmas so yeah I was very very interested in non-fiction as well and dad got into a lot of trouble because he bought me, I was in Sainsbury's and you could either have like a magazine or something, you know, or a kinder egg. And I asked for world famous dictators, which I've still got. And it was, um, it was really horrific. <laughs> and I remember sort of making notes, I got it, looking at it, I got it when I was about 10. And I've, I've made notes and then come down to mum and dad and asked all these questions about Caligula. And my mum, I remember my mum saying, Bob, what have you bought? What book have you bought? <laughs> I mean, it's, it, go, it goes deep, does World Famous Dictators by Ian Schott. Um, and then I think my mum wanted to sort of uh, kind of broaden my horizons a bit. Mum and dad were great because I think they were nervous of the American, they were nervous of Judy Bloom and Paula Danziger in case I was kind of getting getting ideas too soon. But then I think they realised that I was learning constantly through books. Books were my touchstone. And, and you know, I was a weird kid. You know, I, I, I think I, I, I had I've had great friends and still have great friends from that time. But I was a bookworm. But probably I'd started to read some fairly strange things. And so mum 
bought me the complete set of The Secret Diary of Adrian Mole and then The Queen and I and just everything written by Sue Townsend. And I think it was this attempt to sort of perhaps introduce me to all these sort of different things that can happen in the world through books. And I understand that a lot more now that I'm a mum is that you constantly think, how do I show them that the world's full of difficulty and challenge and disappointment, but without, you know, just making them watch late night Hollyoaks? <laughs> <laughs> so um, that will come later. And I think actually Secret Diary of Adrian Mole is brilliant for sort of, wow, and he's he's actually, he's sort of a mix of, of infuriating and adorable, and I could see myself getting into the sort of situations that he did. And then probably one of the most poignant, terrible distressing books I'd ever read was The Queen and I by Sue Townsend and that, that devastated me and still does actually that that tale of poverty and trying to mask how much which is it's, it's all it's wrapped up in this kind of light banter I suppose it's a lot like Dickens yeah isn't it really yeah. seeing how people live yeah. and showing people and I was thinking that that's still oh it's you know just crushing and heartbreaking and relentless never more so than at the moment but from Dickens onwards it has not gone it away. hasn't gone away it hasn't gone away it's, I wear so obviously I, I work in disaster response and our one of our very lowest points was the Grenfell fire of 2017 and the Grenfell tower sits on an estate um called the Henry Dickens estate you know and it was donated by the land is donated as part of the Dickens for you know philanthropy and you know the houses the the the, the uh, residences where people live are called things like Dorrit House named after mm. the characters one of the one of the things for me about working in North Kensington is it's just the shocking inequality between one half of the borough and the other half of the mm. borough and this idea that we will, you know, we will force children now, today, in year eight, to, to, to learn about the Christmas carol, learn about uh, Oliver Twist, while they have not had breakfast and will not have tea and will go home to a cold house. You know, Tiny Tim is real. And I think that's one of the things at the moment is we, we kind of like to sequester stories into, well, those are from other times. And it will be a very different experience for an English teacher at the moment teaching a, a room full of children in both food and bed poverty who are freezing cold at night. I need you to learn about this time in the past that, that Charles Dickens was writing about. And I find that, that very, very uh, moving. And I was with at one of the literary festivals, the wonderful BBC reporter, uh, Lisa Dissett, who has had a real effect on me. And she was asked, you know, what reading do you do to kind of inform and inspire yourself? And I think people expected kind of big nonfiction tomes on the future of the Middle East. And she said, the most insightful reading you can do comes from literature. And it might be historic literature or it might be um, it might be something right now, but written in poetry. It does not have to have that kind of big nonfiction. I'm here to tell you politics brand. And that has really stayed with me because I'd felt. I had to hide the fact that a lot of our disaster work is actually informed by literature. So a lot of our pandemic work had been informed by novels and narratives of the time. And also, of course, you know, my big hero, Stephen King. <laughs> and, but you felt like you couldn't draw on literature. Certainly, my God, you certainly couldn't draw on a government meeting. But the stories, and so for me, The Queen and I is a story that every civil servant should be reading right now about what poverty, grinding poverty, feels like for a family. I must confess that often when I read 
I want to escape the relentlessness of everything. Yeah. But then I think it is so important to remember that the point of literature is to expand our, not just imaginations, but I think, I mean, I, I really believe in reading for empathy. It's complicated. Yeah. Um, and I just wrote a book for the Pound Project uh, called Burn Before Reading. Yeah. I think it might be coming back for Christmas. But in researching that, I learned about there are different kinds of empathy. And I think it's, uh, you will probably know this better than I do, please jump in and correct, but the difference between kind of cognitive empathy and affected empathy. Mm. And I believe cognitive empathy is listening to someone's experience yeah. and opening your mind to it and being respectful of it yeah. and just sort of trying to trying to hear and affected empathy is much more like oh I'm sorry your cat died my cat died yeah 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 oh, we get we get a lot of that in disaster management and you want lots of the first one and 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 less of the second one definitely and and books are books are a, a great way uh of kind of I think expanding your ability to do that and to place yourselves into other into other shoes and to think about how it must have been 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 to feel that um and you I think sometimes you can tell uh not to start defaming anybody but you can tell whether a writer's empathetic I you know and I think that that's really uh interests me is what you feel about about the the writer and sometimes you can pick up where they are in, in their own life and the sort of uh, the trauma and the um, a writer that writes before and writes after. So I think, I mean, the the sort of really the most obvious one for me is the two memoirs by Sheryl Sandberg. You know, one written before she loses her husband and the other written afterwards. And it's not quite crikey, I've rethought everything I've said. It, she doesn't do that, but there's two women. There's two. There's two different women writing two books, and that always fascinates me in terms of, um, you know. <laughs> what would you see great states men and women and great politicians write at the end of their life perhaps after they've gone through the experience of say geriatric care in the uk <laughs> what would they write about at 90 whereas sort of if at 50 they're writing mm. thrusting kind of this is this is you know a book called leadership or a book called this what would they write at 95 i always like to sort of gauge the readers uh, empathy and their own self-awareness i always think jay goody's uh, memoir and the last chapter she's she's died and her mum writes the last chapter and I always think it's in, she knows she's dying and it's incredibly self-aware but also kind of redemptive in that again she's sort of setting out this stall of I was a real arse there or I was really daft there and it's the ultimate kind of I've got one chance to write this 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 writing and that that always fascinates me because I I wrote in a similar way and without the without you know thank goodness without the potency of of of, of knowing that but I didn't work on the principle that this was a book where I perhaps get nine other chances to say my piece this this was my book and so I was going to you know if I died tomorrow that would be the book that I had written and uh, you know Kathy Bensonbrick who's been incredibly helpful all the way through with with writing memoir. I'd always said, you know, don't settle scores, don't don't try and set out your stall, don't be wonderfully kind of I'm a because what I was doing for a long time, even preparing for the kind of press side of the book, was I was answering everything like it was a viva for a PhD. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and then what happened in 2021 was like loads of amazing disaster textbooks came out, you know, disasters by choice by Ilan Kelman, 
Disasterology by Sam Montano, Catastrophe and Systemic Change by Jill Koenig. And they just released me. <laughs> they were written. They were done. So I could go, here's Lucy. <laughs> and full jazz hands. <laughs> oh, that's so fantastic. So first, I want to go back to Kathy because I yeah. love her. Yeah, We've yeah, had her yeah. on the podcast. I've known her a little while. And I just think she's wonderful and yeah. her book's wonderful. But also, I did wonder then whether you were going to say, and I thought, oh no, I'm writing a disaster book. But so are all these people. But to find that liberating yeah I think that's such brilliant 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 writing advice to think well I don't have to this doesn't have to be definitive for everyone it only needs to be definitive for me and something I think as well whenever I'm sitting down to write and feeling really like trapped and miserable and anxious and I've just handed in my next novel and that the crushing weight on my chest and the fear and the panic and oh god it's going to be just terrible I can't I can't I can't I think Imagine if today was your last writing day yeah. and someone said, okay, that's it. You hate yeah. it. No more. That's yeah. You're done. No more writing after today. I, I'd hate that. And I hate that idea mm. so much more than I hate the idea of sitting down to write. I suppose I come at it slightly differently because I did not consider myself in any way a writer. <laughs> so, I mean, I, the sort of the opposite thing was like, goodness me, if I publish a book, will I ever work in disaster planning again? <laughs> Which was a concern. But also having to learn the craft and, and learn the craft of, of writing in a certain way. So I'd written either trade pieces or kind of academic pieces before, you know, learning the craft, having a very strong sense of the reader that the book isn't just for you or your, or your mum. It, it is a book that somebody has to enjoy and what might they want at this time. And also, I think the other thing that I had not had any exposure to at all, apart from, you know, a few friends who worked in the industry, was understanding the incredible world that is publishing. So I hadn't, you know, all of that was new to me. And that's been, that's been, again, a tonic. I've I've thoroughly, I like deconstructing and learning how things work and why a book might be released at a certain time of year. And I want to do a presentation for my publishers with a disaster systems theory head on because I, I've, I've been fascinated about how their decisions, like a sort of sliding doors moment, the timing of when the dust settles, I think, work very well, how their decisions uh, affect the next step, which is very similar to disaster preparedness or disaster prevention, ideally. So p- publishing has just blown my mind. I found it absolutely fascinating. Oh, my goodness, Lucy, and not to sound trivial, but as, as an author who knows a lot of authors who often feels quite... You know, as though the, the process of writing and the process of publishing, they're both so different. And I think writers feel quite scared about the publishing part. I know I do. And you feel as though there are things you ought to be doing that you're yeah. not doing. And you don't quite know what's in your hands and what's out of your hands. If you wanted to do a course for writers on <laughs> disaster management for published authors, you could print money. We would all come. <laughs> make it happen I so want to do it I've been harassing my publicist because I think my publicist was um incredible and also I think there's so much there's so much analogy between disaster Can response and a, publishing. is it Becca Hodder yeah yeah Becca Mundy. Becca Mundy I love her she's Hodder, great and she's just been incredible and I think the decisions they make have influenced so much but also the logistics has really reminded me of disaster management and there's so so many moving parts so I am, uh, yeah, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm just in awe, really, of, of the whole process. And, um, but, yeah, I mean, the big thing for me was that it, it was a bit of a mic drop, you know, the kind of, it existed. And then that was, that was it. Then I was, I was at peace. It was, a, it was, it was a strangely um, zen feeling when the book came out. That sounds 
delightful and um, okay, <laughs> unlike anyone I've talked to, if you could get us to all have that Zen feeling, it'd be great. So I know you've talked a bit about what you've learned from Kathy, but I'd love to hear about whether you went on one of her courses and what the biggest sort of changes were in terms of your preconceptions about how you would write a book and how she kind of developed your your writing and you. Did she change you? Completely. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so I did do one of her courses and I'd also been to a couple of events uh, with her. We we, we met through uh, our wonderful agent, Jo Unwin. And, and so she really helped me form the idea, as I say, of the reader who was reading this. Um, I think um, all of her writing is, you know, write it all down, I think is the, is the latest one, isn't it? It's very clear on pitfalls which were all the pitfalls that I was falling into and actually um many of the other people on the writing course were also making the, the mistake so yeah Kathy is probably a one-woman savior for the publishing industry to stop the the bad habits of 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 uh, uh, of many of us creeping in um the disaster world is quite hard the emergency planning world is quite hard on itself and hard on each other we you know I always say we kind of eat our own young and it was just the idea of people like her saying, there's a story here, write your story. Um, and that the academic rules or the emergency planning writing rules don't apply. So you never use an adjective. <laughs> or, you know, I, I, you know my, my, um, my, uh, my book is very kind of visual and visceral and, you know, there's words like fleshy. And, and you know, you just would, that wouldn't just make it into academic writing. So she freed me, essentially. And I think that was that would be my, my huge advice. And also uh, a really strong sense of where it was going. So some of the course obviously works on on a story arc. And then she does a lot of work with writers on how much of themselves to give. So when I'm at festivals, people always say to me, gosh, you gave a lot of yourself in this book. And I don't think I did. Like, there's so much more of me. <laughs> but people are like, wow. But I knew that unless you knew me and you understood a bit more about me, then some of the other stuff would never make any sense. So you had yeah. to have a whole big chunk of Lucy for this to make sense. So she really helped with, with that. And then and then to feel safe when you're writing about that and to, to work out what the reader can handle. <laughs> and that's been, for me, a huge relief is that the the feedback from readers is we can handle this we can hear what you're saying the other reason i wanted to go to the dark places of of some of the difficult things with response or with my own life was that point you make about empathy was you know if i'd sort of written this in this third person you know when when we were we were um auctioning the book there were various pictures that were very kind of um, we want you on a sort of a, sort of on a higher plane critiquing disaster management that book you wouldn't have got to know me at all and i wanted I wanted people to understand a lot more about about why I care about the personal effects of a disaster scene, so she helped me get that sweet spot between total revelation. <laughs> I think we got there <laughs> um you know I've held some stuff back, and then you know sharing and people say to me you know when we go on stage to talk they'll say are you comfortable can I ask you about the chapter little losses can I of course I'm comfortable I've got no source remorse (laughs) ask ask me anything so I think that I love source remorse is that a (laughs) Kathyism 
That is a journalistic phrase where when I do... Re- I've learned over the years, don't get source remorse, which is where you agree to be on the record and then they quote you. Ah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, you've. I think you've got to stand by every word of it. And the other thing that was interesting, I know Becca and I were laughing about it, is I know every word of the book, which actually, understandably, this is my one big book. You, I wouldn't expect you to know every word of your book. But people will say, oh, I like that bit. I'm like, oh, page 72. <laughs> <laughs> it's like my weird ninja trick but it's also of course you could talk to me about it this is this is this is me the big test i haven't taken disaster husband tom to any literary festivals and the big test is whether he will love <laughs> he like he loves the book whether he'll love the the, the amount people know about us we'll have to see <laughs> because i think that's it's complicated isn't it because it's so intimate we are alone when we write yeah and the idea that people know and we're reaching them it's complicated because I completely agree and I think you need to write for a reader and have an idea perhaps of who that reader is and yet make sure that it's not a reader who you're writing it at or trying to prove something to but maybe it's your it's one's reading self that you're you're writing to but also I've definitely had that moment of a shock sort of with all my books. I wrote a book called How to Be a Grown-Up and there's a chapter on um, masturbation, which I really was very, very, very important to me and hugely inspired by Kat Moran, that that's something that I grew up with a lot of shame around, sort of, you know, very strict Catholic upbringing and that sort of reclaiming our bodies and enjoying our bodies on our own terms. And I think it's a way to make sure our bodies aren't for other people. You know, that was so important. That's pretty much... um, you know, in the proposal, that was the first sort of, it, it starts with wanking, yeah, yeah. follow. I met someone on a shoot once and they were really lovely and said, oh my goodness, you wrote that book, How to Be a Grown-Up. I loved it. And we sort of were like, do we hug? Do we and I went for an awkward handshake. And as our hands touched, I remembered my wanking chapter and thought, this woman knows a lot about where this hand has been. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. Exactly. And I think... Do you know, the thing with me, though, is that that is a... <laughs> I was going to say that was a relief, but that would be, that would be a strange <laughs> juxtaposition from what we've just talked about. It's had two effects for me. One is the people that already know me. So the police colleagues, for example, who've bought the book. And they were reasonably good allies during the times that the book described. But now, like, I've had an arm around me and they've just been like, loose. I didn't know. And I'm I'm sorry. And so it's changed my relationship with a lot of my colleagues. And these are the things you can only hope for when you're writing. You don't know if you're going to achieve them. And then the second thing is, it's every, it goes back to that conversation we were having with the dyspraxia. It's everything that I already am. It's just, it's now a bit more of a billboard. So take me as I am. And people are good, like, they'll arrange the transport for a, for a festival and then they'll say, well, I'll hear them on the phone and say, well, Lucy doesn't drive. And a part of me will think, well, how do they know that? And then I'm like, oh, yeah, it's the first, it's literally the first page <laughs> of the book. So I've, it's almost like I've now, the book is my rider. Like, the book says who I am. But it's interesting as well because people are reading lots of different things from the book. So one of the things... Uh, is the book is also obviously a love story and uh you know a couple of people have said to me this is there's disasters in this and there's loss in this but my god this is a love story and also I know why you're not coming home and talking about work is because your relationship with Tom is about love and sex and life and laughter 
And and I love that they've got that. And that's also the genius of people like Kathy, that she could help you draw out and, and had two brilliant editors, uh, Celia and Kirthy, and both of them were they were beating out any of the rantiness or any of the boring. Um, I remember there was a bit where Celia, in a very wonderful line, said, actually, Lucy, you'll be, you sound like an arsehole. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's, that's the other thing I would say to writers is always have an editor that can tell you when you're being an arsehole, whether it's fiction or non-fiction. Mm. You, you, you need that. And it was in an interaction between me and Tom. I was never an arsehole at work. It was in an interaction. And, and they got, the, you know, they helped me draw out that, you know, there was a danger the way that, that I've crafted the book where I'm not talking to Tom about work. That's the whole kind of premise. Well, that could look like there was a big hole in our relationship. But actually, people are like, were you at it like rabbits in your 20s? <laughs> and then Brilliant. there's a bit of swearing. And then, you know, and so I, I, I feel like you get me. I feel like you get who I am in that. And there's everybody in there and... and you know, books like books like yours that talk about things like that are what we were missing. And now, you know, now my daughters will have that. And, you know, I remember the first time, I think I said this to you when we met Henley, you were like, what books? And the first book that came to mind was like Louise Bagshaw, Career Girls. And you were like, oh, oh yes. yeah. And so there was that. And I remember like my auntie giving me all of a Maeve Binchy collection, which is not quite as quite the same as Louise Bagshaw. But suddenly you've got books that are describing things slightly, slightly differently. And that's I need I need adjectives. I need big. I need to understand, you know, and Louise Bagshaw, you were like, wow, you're literally I mean, this this probably sounds so naive. but I was about 17 thinking, wow. I knew Chaucer was allowed to write it down, but I didn't know girls were allowed to write books like Career Girls. <laughs> I was like, it's just amazing. It was so wow, and 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 I hate book snobbery. You know, I hate the idea that, and that's that's one of the things about curating my shelf is you are going to find Louise Bagshaw celebrity memoir stuff on heavy periods. You Chaucer Pompeii you know everything it's all on there there's there's no book snobbery if i like a book it's coming home i mean you are the platonic ideal of a your book guest <laughs> quite honestly the the <laughs> essence of the purity <laughs> damn i'm trying to remember what i was going to ask you and i'm completely distracted by career girls and um gosh is it topaz and yeah what was the other oh, the very the one oh, who's um, there's to- rowena rowena topaz and, and topaz Oh, that was oh. it. I did want to say to the listeners, um, former <laughs> guest of the pod, friend of the pod, Kathy Rensenbrink, her brilliant book, Write It All Down, yeah. is a great memoir writing yeah. guide. So Buy it. try and go on one of her courses because they're yeah. great. I've never been, but I would love to go. Yeah. But um, Write It All Down is beautiful and really useful. And um, I'm in the back. Oh, in the help section. This, yeah. yeah, this... This is it. I've just I've just contributed because she's got a new one coming out, um, oh. which is like an updated one on a manual for heartache, yes, um, which me is too. which is a gifting book. So there are some books that should be available on prescription, mm. National Health Service. One is Gavin Francis's recovery, but I do think uh, Kathy's uh, manual for heartache, which I think is going to have a new title when it's re relaunched, mm. um, it should it should be available. And I had a really funny story with that one because I had a rucksack on my back at King's Cross and I put it down. <laughs> and uh, similar to how producer Dale found me, it was um, taken off by British Transport Police to be blown up. But I realised what was happening soon enough and got got to it before it did. 
And they asked me to describe the contents. And I was in the middle of Kathy's course and I had all of her books. And they got out like a copy of Psychology's magazine and a really sparkly notebook because I always have notebooks with affirmations on. So it was things like, you know, dream it, believe it, load of chocolate. And then a manual for heartache, which they assumed was about love, but of course it's about bereavement. Mm. And the British Transport Police were like, it's all right, love, you will find the one. (laughs) (laughs) And I obviously had this this, this bag that was like, you know, (laughs) it just looked like... The, 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 you know, and, and at that point, I was, you know, I was literally between big disaster planning meetings, but simultaneously doing Kathy's course. So that that always makes me laugh about her her book. But yeah, you can't you can't go wrong with all of all of Kathy's writing. Oh, Lucy, I just want to talk to you for the rest of the day <laughs> and possibly throughout into 2023 until 2024 minimum please like come back on I'll anytime come back on. But we'll do disaster planning my, for publishers. The, that would be so brilliant. Um, the um, heartache I'm facing is yeah. that we do have to wrap yes, this up. So I'd love to ask about um, any books on your Christmas list, any books you're planning on giving this year, what's on your to-be-read pile, what are yeah. you excited about? I've got my new new Val McDermott's. They're on my to-be-read. They will be read when I'm home alone for a day, which uh, I'm a very fast reader, but I need for, to just get absorbed in that. I need, I need everybody out of the house. Um, I've got, uh, my, my, uh, couple of new non-fiction ones. I'm very interested in some of the books on the origin of HIV and AIDS. So I've, I've done a bit of a, um, for, for work, done a load of, uh, non-fiction purchasing there. And there's a new one on the mortal coil on the, on the history of death and dying, which is right up my street. So my t- to be read is, uh, is a mix of, of fiction and non-fiction at the moment. I will be gifting. Um, I, I always ask for a load of, uh, uh non-fiction books myself. Um, uh, and I'm just really, I'm really excited. I want Richard E. Grant's new one. I want Matthew Perry's. I'm into my celebrity hardcore memoir at the moment. So I'm very interested in all of that. And I will be gifting uh, Recovery by Gavin Francis. And of course, When the Dust Settles. <laughs> yes, of course. You've got a massive box of copies. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, thank you one. for the reminder, because I'm desperate to read the Richie Grant and the yeah. Matthew Perry. I've just asked producer Dale for Christmas for the Alan Rickman diaries. So oh, I might have one. to um, yeah. add us a little like, postscript and say, and if, uh, well, you're wrapping up books, it's yeah. an easy shape. Yeah, I would. That that's going on my list as well. I'm going to steal that one from you as well uh i just like you i just get lost in bookshops at the moment and uh, spend far too much money in there but it's it's so worth it um mm. and also it's... you know if i can the other one up there that i'd really love to recommend is my very good friend by this process i'd only met her during this process is anna kent's frontline midwife which sits very well with mine about um humanitarian assistance as a midwife and i think People want to know about this work, so that's a great one to get. Awesome. Lucy, I have had the most fun. It has been such a great pleasure. As always, whenever I've seen you, I felt so uplifted and inspired and joyous. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you for your beautiful book. And I hope that everyone is going to get When the Dust Settles for Christmas. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me. Huge thanks to Lucy. When the Dust Settles is out now, published by Hodder. It's every bit as warm, wise and wonderful as the woman herself. This Christmas, I'm going to be gifting it to everyone I know.
you can follow us at YBooked on social media. Look out for book recommendations, words of wisdom from old guests and occasional shelfies. We love it when you share the podcast with your friends and thank you so much to everyone who's left a five-star review. If you haven't yet and you've been listening for a while, uh, if you could do it, we would really appreciate that. It's the best way to help other people to discover us and new books. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Lucy at acast.com forward slash booked and check out her selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. Don't forget to follow further reading on Substack for more information about Lucy and her book as well as lots of lit chat. We'll be back soon with more bookish conversations but for now I leave you with this from Doris Lessing. With the library, you are free, not confined by temporary political climates. It is the most democratic of institutions because no one, but no one at all, can tell you what to read and when and how. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.